good morning, everybody. So good to have you all here with us to worship Jesus this morning. Just a small point of clarity. I hope that you all RSVP'd if you plan on coming to Nate's party today. Because uh, we did order food for the people that RSVP'd. So, um, I love you all. Uh, okay, so we are in the middle of a, of a series on Jesus' miracles. And uh, today's miracle is, is fascinating. It is fascinating. Now, granted, they're all miracles, right? They're all fascinating. Uh, how can a miracle not be fascinating? But to me, sometimes these miracles have a, a certain um, story to it, right? Some, some like extra information that really draws you in and just makes you go, wow, that is fascinating. And to me today, this is one of those miracles. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask that you turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And this is the story of Jesus healing the centurion servant. Jesus healing the centurion servant. So turn with me to Luke chapter 7. It's 10 verses long. So I'm going to ask as you follow along as I start reading that passage, Luke 7. And... Follow along as I start reading, please. So when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man of a man who is under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd, followed him. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Go back up to verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. How? How can the creator of the entire world, who knows everything, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's God in the flesh, how can he be amazed? How can he be amazed? How is that possible? There's a couple of things I want us to think about just for a moment as we start getting into this passage. And the first is this. So when Jesus came to earth and he became man, Jesus chose not to use some of his godly attributes. Jesus put them aside. 
By doing so, he did a couple of things. First off, he made himself able to relate to man. The second thing is that he did was that this forced him to be, this caused him to be dependent on the Heavenly Father. And we see that several times in the New Testament. So Jesus set some of his attributes aside. He chose not to use them. I, you know, so the best way I could think about illustrating this, and this illustration falls a little short in some areas, but you'll get it. All right, let's dream big. Let's say that I have $5 million. All right, I have $5 million. So I can choose to use that money. I can choose to spend that money. I can choose to invest that money. I can do whatever I wanted to do with that $5 million. Or perhaps I just choose to put it in the bank. It's still my money. I still have access to it. I can get to it anytime I want. But I'm choosing to set it aside for a while. That's the same thing Jesus did with his godly attributes. So that's one way of considering how Jesus, the creator of the world, who is omniscient, can find himself amazed. And last Friday, I was talking to my daughter, Kayla, and we were in our car driving around Friday. And so I told her what I was preaching on. I said, hey, Kayla, there's this verse in there. And it says that, that Jesus is amazed. How can Jesus be amazed? And she says, well, Dad, uh, just a few summers ago, we went out to Yellowstone. And we knew what Old Faithful was going to look like. And we've seen pictures of it. It wasn't a surprise. But we still sat there, and as we witnessed it in person, we were still amazed. And she says, just last summer, we were at national parks, and we saw the beautiful mountains. We knew they were going to be there, Dad. But as we saw it, we were amazed. And I thought, out of the mouths of teenagers. <laughs> so think about that. Jesus was amazed at the faith of this man. He was amazed. When Jesus sees you, and when Jesus hears you, is he amazed at your faith? And if you're anything like I am, you're thinking, I'm not even amazed at my faith most of the time. How can Jesus be amazed at my faith? I think that Jesus was so amazed at this man's faith because he was a true disciple. He was a true disciple. And this is a Gentile. He's a Gentile. Probably had never met Jesus personally. But he was a true disciple. This morning, we're going to work our way through these verses. I'm going to point out to you five marks of a true disciple. And this is my goal. This is what I hope to do today. That, that for the next few minutes, as we work our way through this passage... That we do it in a spirit of prayer and say, God, show me, what do I need to do in my life this week? What is something I can do to put one of these marks of a true disciple into my life so that I can continue to grow my walk with you, so I can continue to live for you and to take my next step towards you? So let's get started. See which one God's speaking to you about today. Listen to him and say, you know what? This is the one. This is the one this week that I am going to, through prayer and through the Spirit of God working in my life, this is the one I want to take some steps in. Let's go back up to verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening. When Jesus had finished saying all this. Well, what is all this? All right, so when Luke writes that down, the, the all this that he's talking about is that whole previous chapter. Just prior to this miracle, Jesus was on top of a mountain, and he preached a sermon. So we call it the Sermon on the Mount. 
In that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was telling his listeners, and he was telling you and me, this is what a true disciple, a true disciple of Jesus looks like. And then he starts to describe it. All right. We don't have time to read the whole thing, so we will refer back to the Sermon, or to the sermon on the Mount as we go through these verses. So when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum was basically the unofficial uh, headquarters of Jesus' public ministry. He spent most of his time there. He did many of his miracles right around there. It was kind of his unofficial headquarters for his public ministry. That's where he spent a lot of his time. Verse 2, it says, There a centurion's servant. Okay, let's talk about what a centurion is. A centurion is a Roman soldier who had worked himself up through the ranks. Six times in the New Testament, a centurion is mentioned. Six times. All six times, the centurion is spoken of in a very good, positive, honorable way in the New Testament. Six times. A centurion was respected by his peers. He was brave. He was, he was strong. He was a warrior. He had worked himself up through the ranks to be able to be in charge of, uh, of of about 100 other soldiers. He had 100 soldiers' hands, lives, lives in his hands. And he was well regarded by the people he led. He was well regarded by the people he, he was to report to. He was the total package. He was the backbone of the Roman army. Right? He got things done. He got things done well. That's a centurion. And it says, it says this centurion... He had a servant, and the servant was very sick. And it says there, there a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly. That was unheard of during the times of the Roman Empire. Slave servants were not valued. In fact, there were other writings from around then where they are referred to as being on the same par as animals and as tools. If they get sick, if they get wounded, dispense of them. We don't need them. Get someone who can do the job. They are seen as a tool and not a person. Not valued. But God, for whatever reason, chose to put this servant underneath the care of this centurion. And he was highly valued. This centurion had compassion on his servant. Did Jesus talk about that in the Sermon on the Mount? Absolutely, he did. It is found in verse, chapter 6, verse 31 of the Sermon of the Mount, just prior to this miracle. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Also in verse, verse 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This centurion was showing he, who is a Gentile, was living this out. He was a true disciple. He was treating other people the way he would want to be treated. He was a man of compassion and mercy. How are you doing in that area? There are a lot of opportunities all around us for us to, to show compassion to people who are in need around us. Just in our church alone, we have the snack pack, which helps provide lunches for students in our area who might need some assistance getting a good lunch. We also have the Garden of Giving. Uh, it, it provides food, uh, 
for different food shelters in our community. There are, there are shelters, there are missions around us that you can be involved in to care for people who may need some assistance for a while. You can open up your home to widows, to orphans. You can sponsor a child around the world. You can sponsor a lot of children around the world. Or perhaps you know somebody who's in need and you can go to the store and buy them something. You can do something for someone to show compassion. How are you doing in that area? Do you show compassion to someone who more than likely will never be able to return the favor? It's compassion. That's mercy. That's what the centurion did. He was living it out. The first mark of a true disciple is a true disciple shows compassion to the needy. Let's keep going. Verse 3. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Go back to verse 5, start at verse 5, because he loves our nation. What? Really? This is a Gentile. The Gentiles and Jews hated each other. Man, they hated each other. Still, today, all these years later, millions of Gentiles and millions of Jews hate each other to this day. And it was no different back then. It may have been, it may have been even greater back then. Not only was this man a Gentile, but think about this. He was a soldier, a centurion in the Roman army. He was placed in charge of this part of the nation of Israel by Caesar to do two things. To make peace, to make sure that the Jews didn't get out of hand, to make sure peace was in the area. And the second one, to collect taxes. Caesar would use the Romans to make sure he got his money. Can you think of a more hated man by the Jews back in that day in the nation of Israel? The nation of Israel was their promised land, the Jews' promised land. They felt they were rightly deserving of this land. And now you got this Gentile soldier in their land taking their money. They hated him. But when the elders of the Jews go to Jesus, what did they say? He loves our nation. Wow. He did such a good job, such a good job at loving his enemies that he was referred to, but that people who would normally hate him. And they said, he loves our nation. He loves us. He loves our people. Does Jesus talk about that in the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, he does. Sure does. It's in Luke chapter 6. Verse 35, it says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. How are you doing? And that's a big one. As you're sitting here today, is God through his Holy Spirit bringing someone to mind that you hate? 
do you want to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Man, circumstances can be tough. I don't pretend to know everyone's circumstances and what might cause hate towards somebody. But I know it's not beyond the hand of God. Is God bringing someone to your mind that you need to exercise and practice and display and have love for instead of hate? A true disciple loves his, loves her enemies. Let's keep going. And has built our synagogue. Wow, this man. Who does that? This guy. This centurion. A true disciple. He took his own money. His own money. And built, and built a synagogue. So that the Jews could get together, study their scripture, and worship God in. Whew. Think of that. Man, crazy. Who does that? A true disciple. Does Jesus teach that in the Sermon on the Mount? He sure did. He sure did. He says in verse 35 again, but to you who are listening, I say love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And, I'm sorry, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Jesus is saying, give. Be generous. A disciple of mine, says Jesus, will give and be generous. How are you doing? Now listen, friends, many of us here at Great Oaks Community Church uh, have been blessed, right, with, with more than we need. Some of us, though, not so much. But there's not a person in this room who can't be generous in some way, somehow, with your money, with your time. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, coming a song, just coming along uh, somebody's, being generous with your skills, your talents. How are you doing being generous? It is a mark of a true disciple displayed to us in the flesh by a Gentile man who loved Jesus. The first mark this morning was, is a true servant or a true disciple. I got too many thoughts running through my head. A true disciple shows compassion to the needy. The second, a true disciple loves his enemies. The third, a true disciple gives generously. But let's keep going. Verse 6, so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Okay, here is this centurion. He is powerful. He's obviously got money. He's respected. He's got authority. The world looks at him and says, he's got everything. He's brave. He's a leader. He's strong. He's a warrior. He's battle-tested. 
He's got the respect of the Jews. He's got everything. And yet he comes to Jesus. He didn't even come to Jesus. He sent his friends to go to Jesus. And he says, stop. Stop. Because this man probably hears the crowds around Jesus getting closer to his house. Because he's already asked Jesus to come to his house. And they're getting closer. And the man now is just so overwhelmed by his own sinfulness that he sends his friends. And they tell Jesus, stop. Don't go to his house. He doesn't want you to come to his house. He says he's not worthy to have you in his presence. That's why he wouldn't even come out and talk to you himself. What a contrast to what we see in verse 4. In verse 4, the Jewish elders told Jesus, this man deserves for you to go to him. He deserves it. This is a great delineation between the minds of the Jews of Jesus' day. It was very works-oriented faith. They deserve it. They earn it. They, they, they deserve Jesus to love them because of the works they do. They, they try to earn his favor and his love and his forgiveness. That's how they thought. This man, this centurion, he's like, I am not worthy. Do not come into my house. I am too sinful. You can do your work from a distance. Don't even come into my presence. The fourth mark of a true disciple is true humility before God. How are you doing in that area? When you go into God's presence through prayer, through Bible study, through worship, whether it's your individual time of worship or corporate worship, how are you doing? What is your spirit like? What is your attitude like? To me, as I was thinking through this this week, I thought, you know what, the best indicator for me, and I think for us, at least one of the best, is to consider what kind of sin we carry into God's presence. But let me qualify it. What kind of unrepentant, unconfessed, unacknowledged sin do we bring into God's presence when we go to him in prayer and Bible study and worship? I'm not talking about sin that we have already acknowledged and, and we've asked for God's forgiveness and God, we need your help to overcome maybe a, a, a habit or a struggle in my life. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the type of sin that we like to lift up the carpet and we're sweeping it underneath the rug and we're saying, you know what? I love this sin more than I love you, Jesus, and I'm not giving it up. That's pride and that's a sense of entitlement. It's not humility. What kind of unrepentant, unconfessed sin do you bring into the presence of God when you enter his presence? Let me put some flesh on it, give you some illustrations. And obviously the illustrations are numerous. You can come up with whatever God's speaking to you about in the moment. But maybe it's something like a broken relationship. And perhaps you have a part in that broken relationship, but because of a stubbornness, you refuse to make it right. And it may be going on a month or a decade but yet you enter God's presence. 
with that stubbornness and that pride and that refusal to make relationships around you whole and healthy again. It's pride. It's entitlement, thinking you deserve God's presence. Perhaps it's a, some kind of addiction. I'm not, again, I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about addiction that you've confessed. And you're like, God, I need victory. This is wrong and simple. I don't want it. Please, through the spirit of God, give me victory. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person who loves their addiction more than they love Jesus. Perhaps it's some kind of illicit, immoral, emotional, or sexual affair with someone other than your spouse. And perhaps you're telling God, God, I've got all kinds of reasons. I've got a long list of why I should have this man or this woman and why I should have this relationship instead of the person that I married before you. Perhaps it's profanity. Sunday morning, maybe you sound like a choir of angels. And then Monday morning, you're like, got things in your mouth I wouldn't have in my hands. Perhaps it's materialism. Maybe it's selfishness, greed, whatever it is, right? Hey, listen, as I prepare this, you don't think I'm asking myself these questions? What kind of unrepentant? unconfessed sin do you, do I, do we have as we enter the presence of a holy, righteous God? Or do we come like the centurion? God, I am not worthy, but by the grace of your son and his shed blood on the cross, you give me access to your holy throne and I can come before you and I can bow my knee and I can have a relationship with you Thank you, God, for the forgiveness of your son. Forgive me for my sin. And God, make things right so that I can come before you. I can come before you with a pure heart. Help me get rid of the sin. Where are you at with that? Let's go on to the fifth one. Verse 7. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. All right. This is the fifth one. I won't take long here on this one. But wow, did this man understand the authority and the power of Jesus Christ? Friends, if we, friends, when we leave here today, whatever comes your way, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, whatever comes your way this week, I hope that you and I can rest in the fact that our Lord and Savior, at his very fingertips, has all authority and all power and all control in this universe. Friends, if I was one of these people standing in this crowd at the, on this day, and if I had access to Jesus and was able to talk to him, I can just picture how this conversation is going to go. I'd go, but Jesus, don't you need to go with, be with him to his room, be in his room, physically present with him, and like lift him up with your hands or something? I could just hear Jesus say, no, no. But Jesus, don't you at least have to know his name? No. 
Jesus, don't you have to see his symptoms? I mean, shouldn't you know what the disease is? No. Jesus, don't you have to say something? I mean, isn't there like something you got to say? No. Wow. I hope that as you read miracles of Jesus, that you look and you're just like, wow. Wow, really? Man, God, you can do all that just by thinking. You can heal. You can heal. Friends, he's the same God. He's got the same power. He's got the same love for his people as he did back then. Five marks of a true disciple that we've gone through this morning showing to us in a Gentile man. He wasn't even a Jew. He wasn't even one of God's chosen people that he spent all his time with. He may not have even met Jesus personally, but he loved Jesus. He had compassion on the needy. He loved his enemies. He gave generously. He came to God with a humble spirit, and he understood the authority of Jesus Christ. I hope you, and man, I hope me, grow in our discipleship, that, that we have become more like Jesus. He's got so much, so much he wants us to enjoy, so much he wants us to experience, such peace and love such power to give us through his Holy Spirit becoming victorious over the sins of this world. Man, amazing faith. That's what I want. I hope you want it. And today, find something here in this story. Find one of these marks of a disciple that you can grow in this week and pray as God. God, this is beyond me, but it's not beyond you. You have all authority and power. And God, I ask that you help me take a step closer to you today by becoming a more dedicated, true disciple of Jesus Christ. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us that you would send your son, Jesus, to this planet and to become a man and to endure incredible persecution and difficulty and hardships because you love me and because you love us and each person in this room and each person around the world. And Father, we know your heart's desire is to have us be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray today for anyone sitting in here today who through the Spirit of God and your word was spoken to, and I ask that you through your spirit, will do a work in their life. Give them courage where they need courage. Give them discipline where they need discipline. Give them love where they need love. May they show compassion, generosity, humility. God, I want this church to be identified as disciples of Jesus Christ. I know this church wants it too. So God, we ask for your work, for your power, for your spirit to move among us. God, we are so grateful for your love that you did not leave us as orphans, yet you gave us your Holy Spirit to fill us up. And Father, we ask for your Spirit's fellowship and guidance and power again today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.